Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's special episode of the New Statesman podcast, I report from the Wakefield by-election campaign trail. I speak to Anand Menon, the politics professor and director of UK and a Changing Europe, who grew up in the constituency and gives me the lay of the land. And then I chat with Rachel Cunliffe, my colleague, about what the by-election means. So I'm currently sitting in a gloriously sunny day. Honestly, I'm not skiving off work, but um, it just happens to be a scorcher the week that I've been reporting from this West Yorkshire city on the by-election that's coming up next week. And we're in the gardens of the Hepworth Gallery, which is a very smart looking gallery on the outskirts of the city. I caught up with Anand Menon, the politics professor and director of UK and a changing Europe earlier this week. He actually grew up in Wakefield. So he set the scene about the area for me. Thanks so much for joining us. No worries, Anoush. Good to be with you. I'd rather do Wakefield than the protocol any day of the week. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it because uh, this is all about Wakefield. It must be weird, first of all. I did want to ask you about this. Sort of hearing London-based journalists suddenly try and characterise your city. How has that been? And have you heard any clangers? Well, I mean, I heard a clangor from, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this, from a colleague of mine, Rob Ford, actually, who (laughs) in one of his fantastic Twitter threads described Wakefield as being in South Yorkshire, which was great fun. But uh, actually, it's really nice. It's really nice. And I mean, it's nice and it's interesting. I mean, it's nice to hear Wakefield being mentioned because one of the defining features of Wakefield was that no one visited it and no one talked about it, certainly pre-Hepworth. And secondly, it it says something interesting about how British politics has changed since that referendum. And tell me a bit about that change, because obviously you will have gone back and forth in that time and noticed how things have changed? Well, I think there's two changes, aren't there? I mean, the first is everyone became obsessed with what they like to call rather offensively the left behind. Mm. Uh, So the political agenda change, so that was the first thing, was that all of a sudden some of these places that had been essentially forgotten by government for many decades were suddenly the focus of attention. But perhaps more importantly, the other thing that happened is that places like Wakefield, which were traditionally seen as a safe Labour seat, suddenly became marginal. And there's nothing like being marginal for gaining yourself a bit of political attention, it turns out. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, for attracting the the media circus. How much of a red wall seat is Wakefield? Because first of all, it's a city, right? And it has quite a different demographic makeup than some of the more sort of stereotypical red wall seats. It's a city. I mean, on the other hand, it's the largest city without a university. So Mm -hmm. it's 
unique in that way. It's also a city within which there is a high proportion of working people of universal credit. So compared to other cities, I'd say it's quite poor as well. And levels of education are relatively low. And this is also, I mean, in terms of the Red Wall, it is the sort of place where you might have thought people would have dabbled with conservatism earlier. I mean, that after all, is the defining feature of Red Wall, isn't it? It's places which have been traditionally labour, where demographically you wonder why. Yes. And and when you were growing up, do you remember feeling that it was a labour area? Yes. I mean, in the sense that labour were always going to win elections. It was always, I mean, in my family, and there are particular issues in my family around the, the debate about race, people used to talk about the, the Socialist Republic of South and West Yorkshire. I mean, in, in his darker moments, my dad used to refer to the National Socialist Republic of South and West Yorkshire because, you know, I I remember 79 and the National Front doing very, very well in the election in Wakefield. That was always a feature of politics there. And is that because of the racial mix in the area? To an extent, yeah. I mean, Wakefield is far less ethnically mixed than, say, Dewsbury down the road or Batley and Spen. Mm. But yeah, there is a South Asian population. It's a South Asian population that to a significant extent is sort of lumped together in a specific part of town. And, you know, I've always thought that there's more to that sort of right-wing politics than simply culture. It's a side effect of economic decline as well, isn't it? Yeah. And so when Wakefield changed hands to the Tories in the 2019 general election, were you surprised or was that something that you had kind of picked up would be happening over the years? I think to an extent I was slightly surprised it hadn't happened in 2017. I think it's too easy to forget the fact that a lot of the groundwork for 2019 was laid in 2017, and 2017 saw a swing towards the Conservatives that wasn't quite enough to get them over the line, and Mary Cray won mm. with a reduced majority of, I think, around 2000. So in that sense, it was it was something you saw coming, I think, and in the context of 2019, and that particular election with that particular prime ministerial candidate on the Tory side, not to mention Jeremy Corbyn on the Labour side, it wasn't that much of a surprise, no, to be honest. I've spoken to Mary Cray, the former Labour MP for the seat. And yes, she did talk about the Jeremy Corbyn effect on the doorstep. And she also mentioned that Brexit played a big part in that election. She was very vocally pro-Remain. Do you think that that was a big factor last round? And do you think it's likely to be driving opinion this time round in the by-election? I mean, I think those two factors, Brexit and Corbyn, were absolutely fundamental, albeit in slightly different ways in 2017 and in 2019. This time it's harder to tell. Looking at the polling from Wakefield, then it's clearly not a simple Brexit thing, is it? It's partly about party gate. It's partly about a perception that the government isn't doing a particularly good job. So I think this election will be very, very different to the previous two, to be honest. And and there's a danger, of course, when we go and cover these by-elections from outside of the area that we sort of centre on the city centre and we don't go around to the very, very different diverse areas around uh, around the edges. I've been advised to go and sort of speak to people in the more suburban areas to try and get a mix. Mm-hmm. Could you give us the lay of the land and where you think the sort of by-election will be won and lost? Gosh, I don't think I can give you the lay of the land in terms of where the by-election will be won or lost, but I would say that, so you have the city centre, you have relatively sort of prosperous suburban parts of Wakefield like Sandal. You also have those former mining communities, which are definitely worth visiting, if only to get a sense of how bloody hard it is to get to them. <laughs> These are communities, you know, deliberately built up round the colliery. Uh, and when the colliery is gone, they they have no obvious economic purpose and the bus connections are so dreadful that it's hard for those people to commute into town for work. Even in a single constituency, there's a wide variety of places to visit, I think. 
And that point is made actually in Sebastian Payne, the Financial Times journalist book, Broken Heartlands. He visits Wakefield in one chapter Mm -hmm. and he writes about sort of the amazing Hepworth Gallery, which I think you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, but contrast yeah. that with some of the lack of infrastructure that you've also mentioned there, um, you know, regarding the bus routes and things. And I wonder how you feel about that kind of patchy element of regeneration that, uh, you know, characterises some of these places. Well, what I would say is that in Wakefield itself, the Hepworth divides opinion. On the one hand, there are some people who say, you know, we're getting visitors in. As someone on the council said to me when I was up there a few months ago, we're even getting visitors from London. It's a sad view of, you know, we're attracting people into Wakefield, albeit that those people tend to pop into the Hepworth and carry on up the motorway to Leeds. Mm. Uh, And other people who see this as a bit of a waste of time, which offers very little to the local population, which is a prestige project, mainly for outsiders. There have been some studies of footfall that sort of underline the fact that it tends to be people from outside Wakefield who go there. And so, you know, it's two different visions, if you like, of the future of Wakefield. One very much centred on the local population and what you do and what you invest in should be for their benefit. The other in terms of attracting you know, economic activity in from outside, however limited that economic activity might be. Because, of course, one of the great complaints about the Hepworth is it's slightly outside the city centre. But it's a lovely place and well worth visiting. And they've got a very nice cafe. It's far enough away from the city centre that you probably wouldn't pop into town for lunch afterwards. Right. Okay. I see. And I suppose there's a similar sort of bittersweet feeling about being so near a city like Leeds as well. You know, it can be helpful to be near such a great economic centre, but it can also detract from from Wakefield as a city itself. Yeah. I mean, I'd say two things in response to that, and partly just sort of riffing a little bit on some survey and focus group work that we've done, but I haven't quite finished yet. I mean, the first is, yes, it is striking, I think, across many of those red walls, seat that people compare themselves to the local city rather than to London. So this sort of north-south way in which this tends to be pitched is often not how people themselves see things, but they compare themselves to Leeds or to Bradford or whatever. And yet, Wakefield lives in the shadow of Leeds, which is a very, very prosperous city. And there's another debate in Wakefield at the moment about sort of dormitory town, I suppose you should call it dormitory city Mm. statements. That is to say, there are a lot of new builds in Wakefield whose inhabitants work in Leeds. And there's a debate going on about whether that is healthy for the city or whether the focus should be getting more jobs there. But the other thing I'd stress, I think this is something that Labour sometimes tend to get a bit wrong, is yes, there are problems and yes, people have complaints, but there's still a remarkable sense of pride in place. If you look at the word clouds from some of the focus groups that my colleague at the Policy Institute here at King's has done recently, they're all remarkably positive. It's scenic, it's friendly, it's neighbourly. So coming with a story of doom and gloom is not going to strike the right note in these people. These are people who are fiercely proud of the place, who think the place has real potential, who like living there and want the place to be better. So they want a positive vision, not just a story of decline. Okay, that's so interesting. So if you were the Labour candidate or indeed the Tory candidate, what would it be that you would be trying to sell to the people of Wakefield in these last few days ahead of the by-election? I think for me, for places like Wakefield, it's a story of how this place can achieve its potential. And it's recognising the fact that people think it's got potential and that the people have got potential and pointing to the fact that actually more can be done to facilitate that. I mean, one of the big debates around the whole sort of levelling up story is the debate about the degree to which this is led from Whitehall and and should powers be devolved down. I think empowering councils to do more themselves, giving them the cash to do more themselves, because, you know, 
we had a very brief chat about buses a minute ago. Every place has its own unique problems. There are some places for whom sort of intercity links are a real issue. For Wakefield, intercity links are superb. You know, mm. you're on the N1 and you're on the main line between Leeds and London. What you don't have is a bus from some of these more rural communities into town. So giving power to the people who understand the place and what it needs is absolutely fundamental. And I think there's a lot to be done and said around that. Yeah, because of course that has been the sort of conservative message. It was the other plank other than get Brexit done in the 2019 manifesto. But the concern among conservatives that I've spoken to recently is that there's no sort of physical manifestation of getting levelling up done in some of the places mm-hmm. that they've promised it to. So could that be a vulnerability as well as a selling point for the Tories? It could be. I suppose the big question around that is is timeframes, isn't it? You know, what people call hanging basket levelling up, i.e. Mm. making high streets look a bit nicer, might work in the short term. I mean, it might be a promise of things to come. It might be enough. I mean, remember, a lot of these places feel like they've been ignored and overlooked by government for decades. So if all of a sudden you have government at least seeming to pay attention, that might actually reassure people. But over the medium term, you're absolutely right, without real delivery on things that are difficult and structural and will take decades to address effectively. Then I think places like Wakefield will sink back into that sort of sense of absolute cynicism about politics and what it can do for them. And just lastly, I won't be cruel and ask you to predict the outcome of the by-election, but I will I will ask, what do you think will be the main challenges for the Labour candidate and the Conservative candidate in winning the seat? In terms of winning the election or in terms of what to do once they've won the election? Well, well, I mean, in terms of winning the by-election, but then, yes, please do elaborate on, on once they... I think apathy, actually, is the, is, is, is the main enemy, is getting people out. I, I, I swing wildly on this between whether... Loads of people will turn out to vent their fury at whatever it might be in the world of politics or whether people will just think, oh, sod it, nothing's going to change again. I mean, one of the great things we saw post-referendum was by a number of measures, an increased interest in politics. And I think that is something we should treasure and try and hang on to. And it would just be dreadful if one of the legacies of the last few years was that people thought, well, they're all talk and they're not going to deliver anything for us. So I think getting people out to vote convincing the electorate that it's worth voting because actually politics can do things to change your lives for the better, which is a lot easier to do than to say, I suspect. Yeah. yeah. And once they're in office, once they're representing the seat, what will be their main challenge? I think the big problem, and it's a problem sort of across the piece, you know, whether you think about the climate crisis, the future of work, you know, AI and its impact, all levelling up, is you need long-term policies that are sustained across many different governments of different political views. And that strikes me as something our political system is really, really bad at. Mm. But we're not going to level up between now and 2024, obviously. You're not going to level up between now and 2029, obviously. Our politics works against any kind of shared vision, but actually what so many people in this country need across so many issues is some sense, social care being the other obvious example, is government having stickability doing things for the long term, laying the groundwork for a process that might take a couple of decades, but which, if it is seen through, is going to have massive impacts on the lives and life chances of people in places like Wakefield. Thank you so much for coming on. That was really helpful. I'm sure you'll be sort of watching with curiosity to see what what happens. No, I will indeed. I will indeed. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. 
If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now I'm joined by Rachel, who is down the line from London. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Anish. Hi. How's it going there? I'm sorry that you're not with us amongst these gorgeous flowers. No, I was going to ask, is it as hot there for you as it is here in London with all the additional smog and pollution? (laughs) (laughs) Probably not, actually. It's probably like a little bit cooler here, but, you know, I am in a T-shirt and sunglasses, so. Living the life. Yeah, living the by-election dream. Exactly. (laughs) Other than the heat wave, what's been going on in Wakefield? What's the mood like over there? Yeah, well, I should explain to our listeners that Ben Walker, our data and polling expert, and I have been on the campaign trail the last couple of days. He actually seems to have uh, pushed himself too hard and he's too ill today to come on, unfortunately. I don't know whether it's the sort of like very nerdy version of Freshers' flu, by-election flu. But yeah, sadly, he's not around. But I do have some of his reflections and I've also been interviewing the candidates, box popping locals and going to different parts of the constituency to try and work out what the mood is. So basically just to set the scene for our listeners, this is a sort of crunch by-election for the reason that it is classed as a red wall seat, which the Conservatives won off Labour in the 2019 general election for the first time, I think, for decades. I can't remember the last time that the Conservatives represented this seat. I think it was 1931, actually. And now is Labour's chance to win it back. And the Labour campaign feels very confident. Their data looks very solid. When I was out in different parts of the constituency, including Horbury and South Osset, which are the more sort of suburban, perhaps more Tory-facing, you could say more middle-class, smarter areas of the constituency, if you like. I was out there yesterday and a lot of people were telling me that they would be voting Labour um, and Labour therefore have been targeting sort of all sorts of areas where they didn't necessarily expect to have Tory to Labour switches. So the Labour campaign is confident, although they do emphasise that this 20 point lead that they've been given in some of the constituency polling isn't accurate and that they think that it's more likely to be in single figures. So they're working very hard, so hard, in fact, that they actually have been guarding their candidate, Simon Lightwood, quite closely. I didn't manage to get to interview him, even though I did go up to him face to face and ask. So, you know, that they're, they're sort of campaigning from that very defensive position that parties often do around these kind of very tight feeling by-elections. I also went round with the Tory doorknockers yesterday and interviewed their candidate, Nadim Ahmed. We did have some hostility towards Boris Johnson on the doorstep when we were going round areas yesterday. 
Nadim's campaign is very much based on his own sort of personal credentials, sort of a teacher and a local. You don't see Boris Johnson anywhere on his leaflets. And of course, uh, a challenge for the Tory campaign as well is that is the reason this by-election came up in the first place, which is that their MP, Imran Khan, who got in in 2019, as I explained, he was found guilty of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old. So, um, you know, they are getting that mentioned on the doorstep as well. The Labour Party sort of went hard on that before they had a candidate, but now they're concentrating on their own individual proactive campaign rather than um, using that messaging. And of course, their main attack line on their attack line sheets, you know, the top thing that they're going hard on is Boris Johnson. That's really fascinating because the mythology around Boris Johnson was that he was a conservative who could reach parts of the electorate that other conservatives couldn't reach, whether that was winning London as, as London mayor twice, or just the, the way that he, he sort of resonates with demographics that traditionally don't vote Tory. And that was the big narrative from the, the 2019 election as well, that all of these, these red wall seats fell to the Tories because of Boris Johnson and his ability to connect with that part of the electorate. I should say, you, you mentioned, Anish, that, that Ben isn't very well today. If Ben were here, he'd probably tell both of us off for wearing <laughs> the Wakefield as a, as a red wall seat, because I know that he, he doesn't like the generalisations tied up in that term. But that aside, when we talk about the red wall, it, it, it is very much seats like Wakefield that we're that we're talking about. But that was the narrative that it was Boris Johnson who won and not the Conservative Party. It was it was him. So it's really interesting that from what you've been saying, he's a liability in this by-election, that the Conservative candidate doesn't want the Prime Minister's name on his campaign literature, doesn't want to be associated with the man who two and a half years ago we were saying was the reason for for winning it in the first place. I wonder can you get a sense of how much of that is to do with, say, the, the the Partygate scandals that we've been talking about for the last six months? How much is to do with the cost of living and the fact that the, the levelling up dream doesn't seem to have yielded the dividends that perhaps some people were hoping? How much of it is to do with the, the fact that the Conservative candidate, as you say, had to stand down because he was found guilty of assaulting a, a 15-year-old? I mean, of all of these issues, which do you think are the, are the most prominent ones? Or is it is it a mixture of everything? Yeah, it's a really good question. And actually, Boris Johnson, the man, does seem to be the Conservative Party's big weakness in this by-election. Labour campaigners have picked up on that and are, and are using that as their sort of top attack line. The reason for that is mainly Partygate, as far as I could pick up. The Conservatives will do their best to tell you that that's sort of like people are fed up with talking about it. It's not a priority issue. Yes, it's not a priority issue, but it came up so often and without prompting. So first of all, that has come up. But what that's done, I think, has led to a general feeling of betrayal and also incompetence on the part of the Prime Minister. So other things were coming up as well. The cost of living crisis, for example, the price of fuel here is a really, really big deal. I mean, I'm here during bus strikes in the in the city, um, which means that it's even more crucial that people can get around by car. Um, so that has come up a lot. As well as that, you know, the Rwanda policy as well was coming up on the doorstep. Someone who said that they usually vote Conservative, sort of um, a, an older resident of better off part of town was saying, you know, I won't be voting for, the, for them again because of this. There's been sort of some moral hesitation about it, but also the fact that it, it, it's making them look like, as in her words, that they've sort of lost the plot and sort of focusing on things that aren't necessarily relevant to people's lives. So that's part of it too. 
And in general, there is this sense that trust has been broken. So I was talking to a business owner in Horbury, which is a sort of village-like town in the sort of suburban area. They were saying, I expect, you know, my business might might not be open in 18 months time. And I thought the whole idea was that the Conservatives were supposed to be bringing sort of more more investment, more infrastructure into the area. They were supposed to have this vision, you know, levelling up hasn't happened. And this person who I was speaking to had been a staunch Labour supporter. His father had worked down the pit. You know, he was a classic person who changed his, his loyalty under Corbyn's leadership. He didn't like Jeremy Corbyn and started voting Conservative. And he was despairing about the leadership of the Prime Minister. So I think that Boris Johnson as a person not just because of Partygate, but because of these broken promises, or at least promises that haven't yet been delivered on, is a real liability. And that is going to be a big issue. And you start hearing sort of concerns from conservative voices around here about the fact that there's just sort of no tangible display of levelling up yet. Obviously, levelling up takes a long time by, by its nature. You know, you're trying to redistribute wealth and you're trying to close those those geographic gaps and tackling inequality takes time but of course there need to be some kind of physical manifestation of this actually happening and so far the feeling is that 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 hasn't come about yet and that is something that I spoke to Nadim Ahmed about who did the classic thing he sort of said oh you know we have brought investment to the area but you know we haven't communicated it that well it hasn't been picked up on and you know that is a that is a challenge for us so you know he was accepting that that was a danger to the Tories' reputation. So everyone is assuming that, that Labour is going to, to win this. We've got that those polls showing a 20-point lead. You talked about the Labour Party being very defensive of, of, of their candidate kind of doubling down. I wonder what it would mean for, for Labour and for Keir Starmer's leadership to win this by-election at this point. Obviously, it's it's, it's one of two by-elections happening on, on Thursday, the other one being Tiverton Honiton, yeah. which our business editor, Will Dunn, who I feel like we keep mentioning on this podcast. Right? <laughs> yes. We should bring him on at some point to show listeners that this, this legend is actually real. <laughs> He does really exist. He grew up in, in Devon. Yeah. And so he, he's written his thoughts on that one there. That is one where the Conservatives had a 24,000 vote majority, I think. Yeah. And uh, that one is, is looking like it might be overturned as well, this time by the, the Liberal Democrats. Another victim of, of the Pestminster scandal. This is, this is Neil Parrish, who was forced to resign after it transpired that he'd been watching porn in the House of Commons while trying to look up tractors. But sort of another, another side of the Conservative Pestminster scandal. So that one's happening on the same day and, and looks probable, at least the, the bookies think that that will fall to the Lib Dem. So what does it mean for Labour if they manage to win Wakefield? What does it mean for Keir Starmer, will it sort of give him a boost at a time when his own MPs are saying he's too boring to be Labour leader? And what would it mean for the Conservatives to lose both of these seats in very different areas on the same day for, in some ways, very different reasons, but in, in some ways, quite similar ones? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And actually, I was speaking to a Labour MP who's very close to the campaign about this, and they sort of described a win for Labour in this by-election as it, it would be historic and it would mean that Labour voters are coming home. And it could mean that under Keir Starmer's leadership, the Labour Party is able to win back that red wall. Although there is concern about complacency as well. Um, and, you know, they will always caution that, you know, you can't take it for granted. You know, you have to work every every vote and that it's a, it's a long mountain 
to climb. And as well as that, there are jitters about Keir Starmer's leadership. Apparently, he's, he's, he's very much appealing to, to women, female voters here who feel sort of reassured by him, are fed up with Boris Johnson's shenanigans, whereas men... Apparently, sort of, this is what some campaigners are picking up. It are not quite as convinced by Keir Starmer. I've heard him described as all talk, and he doesn't. To be honest, he doesn't get a lot of love on the doors, as far as I know, as far as I've been here personally. Nevertheless, a win here would show that he is taking his party in the right direction. But then, what happens afterwards? And that's the question that some Labour figures are coming to. There have been sort of frustrated briefings recently from shadow cabinet about the sort of lack of vision, um, sort of lack of policy platform and sort of lack of excitement as well. And so he is going to have to fill in those blanks. You know, it, you can win a by-election on sort of local issues and the strength of your local candidate and also attacking a beleaguered government. But you, you then have to try and do something else to, to win a general something more. And I think that's the vacuum that um, the Labour Party is worried that is there at the moment. And in terms of the Tories, I think it would it would cause a lot of disquiet among the 2019 intake to lose this election. Having said that, you know, a lot of the reporting has suggested that, you know, it's in the bag for Labour. So perhaps it wouldn't necessarily come as, as that much of a, of a surprise. Although the Conservative campaign are trying to be chipper about it and saying that they're more confident than perhaps the sort of national coverage suggests. And those 20 point leads for Labour are just not true. And that's not what they're picking up. And, you know, they were describing to me that there'd been a mood shift recently where a lot of voters were giving them more of a benefit of the doubt. So, you know, we'll see whether or not that's just that's just spin next Thursday. There's no point predicting the result. But yes, it would be it would be a blow for Boris Johnson, who was lent his votes by people in constituencies like these. And that's his magic touch. And if it appears like he's lost it, we already know how many MPs you know don't believe that he should be their leader anymore then it could mean that his political future is even more vulnerable. Tiverton and Honiton, I haven't been there. I've not really been speaking to campaigners so much, but we will be doing a special episode speaking to Will and Ben as well, hopefully when he's feeling better, focusing on that seat. But, you know, I do think that will be the one which is more of a danger to Boris Johnson's premiership. I've been told by uh, a former cabinet minister that it's really those seats in the South if he starts losing those, that is what is going to get his colleagues mutinous. And so that will be, I think, all eyes on Tiverton next week. And the Lib Dems obviously are trying to shoehorn in some expectations management at this point, although they were sort of very, very confident about it earlier on in the campaign. What you said about Boris Johnson, uh, people having very strong views on him, he's often called the, the Marmite candidate on the Marmite politician. Love him or hate him, you have a view on him. Mm. I wonder what type of spread... Keir Starmer might be like the unsalted butter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the nut butter. <laughs> no one really hates it, but you're not going to get excited about it. Nobody chooses to have that. Yeah, and you've only really bought it to try and be healthy, but you really did want Nutella. <laughs> you want to look responsible. <laughs> but really, uh, oh, I think we could probably... Here. We could sorry go, go too far with this metaphor. So um, I'm going to stop. I will say that at this point in, in the campaign, if the Tories manage to hold on to either of those seats because of the way expectations have been managed or not managed, uh, it's going to look like a massive victory for them. And even if they lose Wakefield, but don't lose it by the kind of margin that people are expecting them to, that could also be spun as a as a win, or at least it wasn't as bad as as they thought, which is a bit unfair to, to Labour and the Lib Dems, because everyone everyone is just assuming that uh, the Tories are going to lose both of these. But as you say, we will have to to wait and see until next Thursday. I hope the weather stays really nice and you get to do you get to do more 
more walking around in the sunshine. Thank up you. I am working, I promise, for all my editors listening. <laughs> I believe you, thousands wouldn't. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Anoush. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Rachel Cunliffe. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.